speaking of love, uh, we're going to turn this morning to a passage in the scriptures that uh, you're probably familiar with, uh, at least to some extent. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I think I'll actually be reading at verse 27 of uh, chapter 12. So 1 Corinthians 12 at verse 27. It's the word of God. Now you are the body of Christ and members individually. And God has appointed these in the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, after that miracles, the gifts of healings, helps, administrations, varieties of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Are all workers of miracles? Do all have gifts of healings? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the best gifts. And yet I show you a more excellent way. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels... But have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith, so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy, love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in parts and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in parts will be done away. When I, was a chi- when I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. And now abide faith, hope, love. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Well, brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, the subject of love is... um, course not one that's uh, specific just to the to the Bible uh, but in every age and every culture it has its own opinions and thoughts on love we could go to and quote Shakespeare you know here this morning we could talk about Hamlet who uh, at one point uh, said that you could doubt that the stars are fire, doubt that the sun doth move his abes, doubt truth to be a liar, but never doubt that I love. Romeo, the bud of love, by summer's ripening breath, may prove a beauteous flower when next we meet. Or a more recent 
uh, songwriter some of you might remember. There's nothing you can know that isn't known, nothing you can see that isn't shown. There's nowhere you can be that isn't where you're meant to be. It's easy. All you need is love. All you need is love. All you need is love. Love is all that you need. Now, there is, there is a biblical word, a Greek word, uh, the word eros, that would kind of cover all of that kind of love that typically we find in, in, in books and novels and songs and on the radio and kind of prolific in our, in our culture. But the word that Paul uses, the word generally used um, of the love of God and our love for one another is the word agape. You might have heard that Greek word. If you know any Greek, that might be the one Greek word that you know. Uh, agape love. That really captures what Paul is talking about. Something that is sacrificial. Something that is um, it's deeper. It's not that that romantic love, if sexual love even is wrong. Uh, of course, the Bible you know, also speaks highly of that. But this is something deeper and something different than that. The passage is, is a great wedding text, but also kind of a dangerous wedding text. It wasn't written actually for, uh, for a wedding. It was written in kind of a, a pretty tough, conflict-filled environment and aura in a church in, in Corinth. Um, it's, it's, in the end, the one thing, according to Jesus that he wants to see in his church. A new commandment I give unto you. It's, it's not that this wasn't in the whole Old Testament. Jesus comes and says, here's, here's the, new, the new commandment I give to you, that you should love one another. It's not that that wasn't there before Jesus came. But it's like now that Jesus came, now that you see the bigness of God's heart, how much he has loved us to put on flesh and to come and walk in this world among sinful people like us, and then to give his life away, to actually call us his friends. Greater love has no one than this, than to give up his life for his, his friends. This, this is so new. This is such a fulfillment of everything you've heard before. This is the new commandment. This is what is going to last. Uh, this is what I want you to be known for. When I, as I'm pouring out my life for you, that you would now love one another as I have loved you. And in the church, it speaks to every conversation, every motivation, every vision, every plan that we have, um, every consistor room, every marriage, every relationship, every day in the schoolroom. Uh, this agape at its core is self-sacrificial, self-denying, self-giving. It, it's a favorite for wedding texts. If that was your wedding text, it's a great, it's a great text. But there's a lot of things wrong in Corinth. The church is ready to split apart because of pride and, and arrogance. They had so much. And yet it was getting to the point that they actually had nothing because they didn't have love. It's actually kind of terrifying. One of the, one of the ways I, I, um, I, I try to practice putting myself as a pastor into Corinthians, into the mess, you know, that is church. Sinners, you know, hang out together and worship together and fellowship and live together. Now I realize as I read it that I don't have the first idea of what it means to actually love. Maybe some starting, some 
some uh, embers that are there. But really, I, I don't yet understand what it means to love as Jesus loved. I put my name into the place of love. Mark suffers long and is kind. Mark does not envy. Mark does not parade himself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek his own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And it's a great wedding text, but it's also, it's also terrifying. We'll read what love actually is all about. So our theme here uh, this morning, looking at 1 Corinthians 13, is that we are nothing, uh, we're nothing without love. And we're going to look first of all at this calling to pursue love. It's, it's a pursuit, it's, it's, a, it's a mission. Uh, secondly, uh, we are indeed nothing without love. And then th- thirdly, we'll look at love as a person. So first of all, we are called to uh, to pursue love. As I mentioned, marriage is not the context in Corinth. In fact, it's, it's, uh, it's a church that's ready to fall apart because of inner conflict, uh, because of people using their gifts in ways that seem very religious and seem very God-centered, but actually it was just rife with pride and arrogance and envy and boasting. And they were ready to fall apart. It's, um, I think it's a, it's a special display of God's love and his mercy that he places 1 Corinthians 13, not, or this passage, not in Philippians. You know, it's, it's a book that seems to, or it's a letter that seems to give evidence of a church that has its own, his weaknesses for sure, but nothing to the same extent as, as the church in Corinth. But he puts this marvelous hymn and poem to love in this book. And uh, I, I think we have evidence there that the, the church discovered what it was to love one another. Uh, but it was rocky. It was tough. There's so much arrogance and pride in this church. So much against love. So much division and in fighting. So the one hand, Corinth was known for having the most gifts of any of the churches that Paul planted tongues and interpretation and and healings all of those like early gifts that were just really rampant in the church you know some of which have ended generally in our day and age but in that day where the gospel was going to the ends of the earth and it was accompanied by these signs that said that jesus actually came he died he rose from the dead his spirit is with us blessing the church expanding the church they were known for that and their wealth of knowledge about the scriptures. I mean, this, the, the story was told um, around the, uh, the Roman Empire and among the, uh, throughout the other, the other churches. And there was kind of, um, instead of appreciation for you having this gift and someone else having this gift, and maybe this seems a little lower and not as noticeable as that one, but there's a sort of a one-upmanship, a sort of a sense of, I want that gift, I'm not satisfied with this gift. Jealousy, envy, those who were promoting that their gifts were more important in the church than others. So, you know, I'm, I think about the members of the body of Christ. I'm the mouth, you know, a prophecy and tongues and interpretation. And, you know, you're just, you're the, you're the baby toe in the church. 
And uh, your, your gifts are not as important. I don't need your gift. My gift is, is better. Paul writes at the end of chapter 12, but earnestly desire the best gifts. So desire the best gifts. Pursue the best gifts. In that sense, the, the best use, the best working out, the most God-glorifying church-building use of your gifts. But in all of that, I'll show you a more excellent way. The language here has to do with, with the, highest, the highest thing you could attain to. So here's Corinth at, at the height. Uh, they, had, they had pastors, eloquent pastors and preachers and teachers coming out of Corinth that were, that were uh, planting churches in other places. And there's probably a, a number of different house churches within Corinth, and they were expanding... They were, they were reaching the, the culture. They could speak like the culture's language and persuade people about the truth of the gospel, that Jesus Christ actually was risen from the dead, that that's not only true, but it's rational. It's something you can understand and appreciate. The language here is of the highest thing that you can attain to. It's all kind of spiritual gifts that benefit the church. But here's the mountain to ascend to, the more excellent way. And then he describes in a number of different ways, positive and negative, what, what love is. It's not, it's not the highest gift. Like it's not, a, it's, not a, it's not another gift that you might then feel that you've achieved the best gift. It, it's the highest that you can attain. It's above all of, it's above all of the gifts. Even if I spoke with the, lang- the tongues of men and of angels. You're talking about speaking angelic language. But if I have not love, there's something missing. I remember reading a story of, of a number of, and this happens often, where a number of, of uh, hikers ascended Mount Everest. And... They made it to Mount Everest, signed their name in the book or whatever, and, but on their way down, uh, they died from elevation uh, sickness. They came down too quickly, and their bodies couldn't take the difference in, um, in altitude. Now, that attaining to the top is something that you and I... I I imagine could never could never do. Um, it is strenuous. It's risky. It's um, exacting. And as, as you as you uh, sort of reach those lofty heights, you realize that what drives you um, is not is not simply a sense of getting to the top, but there's something deeper that drives people to get up there, and that's that's love. This love for hiking. It's it's love for that for that achievement. It's love for that view from the top that so few people have, have had. The, the satisfying um, view, the satisfaction of, of making it, of that level of achievements, of somehow surviving all the risk and all of the danger. Love gets you there. It's not, it's not just ascending the mountain in terms of all of these different gifts, but it's something that drives the ascension to, uh, to the top. 
Love is what gets you there. The descriptions of love here in uh, the text in terms of suffering long or patient is kind. Actually, in the Greek, are all verbs. They're not, they're not passive, kind of simply intentional words. They're words of action. Love is an action full of energy, hard work, risk, danger. It, it knows not only what it goes after, but what it refuses to go after. It's not envious. It's not puffed up. It suffers long and is, and is kind. It does not parade itself. It's not puffed up. It's the kind of life-changing inner power that even goes after hard and difficult people in the church. People that we love in Christ but may not like very much. It goes after even sinning people and broken people with kindness and with, with truth. It does not seek its own. It doesn't pursue its own glory. This is the more excellent way. And this is what we are called to pursue. We're called to pursue love. But secondly, we are nothing without love. And this gets to the heart of what Paul is talking about here. We are nothing without love. So Corinth was known for um, its brass and bronze work. And there were many wealthy Corinthians that collected works of arts made out of bronze. Uh, Kenneth Bailey wrote a really uh, great book on, on the Middle East culture, and it's called Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. And he talks about understanding the Bible in terms of understanding some of the background to the biblical text. And he not only studied it, but he actually went to Syria, uh, to a city called Aleppo, and went to the city, center of the city where there was a large brass-making business. And he had forgotten where it was. He was asking for directions, still having a difficult time until he heard the noise of those who were working with brass, hammering away at brass to sculpt it into, into uh, cooking pots and drinking vessels. He could hear it a long ways off. And as he got nearer and nearer, the noise actually was definite. He wanted to talk to somebody who was working with bronze, one of the artisans. He had to get within two inches of somebody's ear in order to be heard, yelling two inches from his ear to get over the, the din and the clamor of that brass work. Now, Paul was a tent maker, so he would have known people like this. He worked in the trades. Uh, he didn't collect a, an income generally from the churches that he, he served. He, he lived among artisans and craftsmen like this. And so he was experienced with this kind of, of racket. His particular trade was a little quieter than brass making. And so much as we do, we tend to take our illustrations, our ideas, our uh, whatever our examples from kind of life that we're used to and we're comfortable with. So he took it from the world of brass making. And in looking at the gifts in Corinth and the problems that were just, just digging into the hearts of, of the Corinthian church and really splitting them, dividing them, all the good work that had gone on there, all the preaching, 
All of the teaching, all the, all the time that, that Paul and Timothy and others had spent there pastoring that church, uh, it was all under threat. And, it, and, and, and it, was, it was confusing because they had the best gifts. There were many who were preachers and great eloquent teachers. Uh, they, knew their, they knew their theology back front and center. They were known for that. They were known for tithing. They were known for exciting worship services. They were known for uh, their love feasts, celebrating communion, their fellowship together. They were known for having a lot of the important people from Corinth as a part of the church in Corinth. There's a certain degree of, of, uh, of, of pride, a sense that they had made it in the middle of one of the most cultural, commercial centers in the Roman Empire. And Paul is saying to them, it's all nothing if you don't have love. In fact, it's, it's loud. It's a racket. People know that you're there. It feels significant. You could be heard miles away. So it seems like something's going on. There are gifts, there's outward demonstration that God has accomplished something here. But if you don't have the more excellent way called love, then it actually becomes nothing or worse than nothing. It's a loud noise that appears to be something but isn't. The gifts were so abundant in Corinth. And they become, because of their lack of love for one another, they become just a deafening, high-pitched roar in the brass market. At a time in which the gospel was going out, the good news of Jesus Christ was pushing its way in to the minds and hearts of pagans in Corinth and Ephesus and Rome and other places, the church was growing. Right here in, in, in Corinth where so many good things were going on, that message just started to sound like, like a noise, like a racket. Now, Paul is extremely personal here. He doesn't address it as one speaking from a lofty height to, to his hearers, to his audience. He puts himself into the middle of it. Though I speak with the tongues of men, Though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, though I give my body to be burned but have not love, it profits me nothing. It's not just that my actions and the, 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 the witness of the church has become just noise, but we can say that we have become nothing, lower than banging brass if I'm without love. I have nothing, I am nothing without love. Even if I have faith, reflecting on the words of Jesus, that could move a mountain. Even if I could speak with the, the language of the angels, I don't know exactly what that means, but it sounds extraordinary. I mean, we're talking angels who spend time in the presence of God around his throne. God sends them on a mission and they go. 
If I even have, have that kind of language, that kind of ability, I become nothing. If I could give myself to be burned like martyrs did back in those days, in, right there in, in Corinth, give away basically everything that I have to the poor, could be so religious, so self-sacrificial, so seemingly um, God-centered, but if I have love, I have not love, I gain nothing. Now, Jesus had this conversation with the rich young ruler who said he obeyed all the commandments of God. And he was no doubt an extremely religious person, but more than that, a person with a soul that was considerate and, and, and careful and concerned knew the Bible back and, and front. Jesus, in, in testing him to see where his heart actually was, told him to go and sell everything that you have, give it to the poor, and then come and follow me. One of the saddest conversations that Jesus has as this man goes away sad because he had so many riches. He descended so far up the mountain when it came to spiritual gifts but had not love and therefore had nothing and went away sad. It's worthy of our contemplation and meditation here this morning. How is it possible to have so much, to display so much as a believer or even as a church of Jesus Christ? To be religious, to even have all kinds of God language. To have certain, certain things down pat, to be known for that, right? If we're, think, if we're thinking here of you know, our particular background, our heritage that we enjoy. Um, I, I've, I've been to a lot of different churches. I've been to uh, places in uh, different parts of the world where they don't experience the same kind of heritage, inter-multi-generational level of spiritual growth and spiritual knowledge what does it look like to have all that and yet to be counted as having nothing and even worse than that if you think about the banging the clanging on brass to actually be a positive nuisance what does that look like When I'm without love in the council room, when I'm without love in the bedroom, in the classroom, with the cashier, on, uh, on the road to church, in the car with my daughter, on the phone with my friend, to be without love, then I am nothing. My actions... are not just void of ultimate purpose and fruit, but I'm a nuisance in other people's lives. I'm not a servant of Jesus Christ. So Paul says, desire the best gifts. Discover the gifts, particular gifts the Lord has given to you and how you might use those gifts 
in your families, in your homes, in your friend groups, in church, in your neighborhoods, your place of work, and desire that and put your, put your whole effort into using those gifts. But the ultimate answer that Jesus would come and, and knock on your door and ask you, do you love people? Is it evident that all of those gifts are, are the sweet-smelling music? There's this anthem that just flows through your life because people know that you love them. People feel that your heart is one of loving God and in receiving the love of God, extending that love outward. That they're in the presence of somebody who's been forgiven and cherished. They've received unbelievable compassion and it seeps out of them. If I have not love, it profits me nothing. Is it true that I think an, an ultimate test. People will say, you know, who's. People will say in Jesus' day, you know, who do I have to love? Who's my neighbor? Please define neighbor for me. And they like to define it, you know, pretty. Uh, in a pretty small way. Uh, who are the ones that they had to, had to love? And Jesus would say, you know, you don't have to love those who can pay you back, those who are your friends. You've got to love your enemies. This is how Jesus loves. This is how we love. This is, um, this is the more excellent way. Otherwise, we're noise. We're a positive nuisance in the world that God has made. There's five different uh, gifts here that are expressed in verses uh, 2 through 5. As somebody put it this way, 5 minus 1 equals 0. Now, children, I know that's not your usual math. Uh, 5 minus 1 usually equals 4. 5 minus 1, those five gifts, those glorious gifts, so beneficial to the church. Minus 1, minus love, actually equals Zero. Love is not one of the gifts. Without love, uh, you and I are not Christians at all. For how can we have experienced the love of God in Christ and not be known for our love? Finally, I want to just talk for a few minutes about love as a person. Love as a person to conclude here this morning. In, um, in the book of Proverbs... You know, it talks about wisdom and, and folly. And it actually, it personifies them. Like it, it treats wisdom not as, you know, not as an, uh, as an idea or a kind of a character trait, you know, that person is wise. But it actually treats wisdom as a person and folly as a person. And it talks about wisdom crying aloud in, in the streets. And, and, and ultimately the Bible treats Wisdom as, as a person that's coming still, but is personified in, in Jesus Christ. He's, he, is, he is to us the wisdom of God, Paul writes in, in a different place. And like wisdom is this most attractive person. You spend time with wisdom, you will become wise. You listen to my words, you know, Father says to his son, and, and you become wise and you will you'll be able to, to avoid the way of, 
the way of folly. It's like this most attractive person you can find and hold and, and listen to. And Paul says there's another name. It's, it's love. And it's not just an idea. It's not just a, it's just not just a character trait. It's, it's a person. It's the very, the very display of love, the personification of love is Jesus giving his life on, on the cross. It's one who gives himself for, for his friends. Say in another place in the New Testament, God is love. He's not just loving, he is love. At the end of this chapter, Paul writes, Now abide faith, hope, and love. God doesn't have faith. God doesn't have hope like we do. But God is love. The character trait that, that fits in terms of who God is and who we're called to be is is love. The greatest of these is love. So Jesus comes down from heaven. He leaves the glories of heaven. What is his motivation? Well, it's, it's certainly the glory of his Father is to fulfill all those Old Testament prophecies. He's, he says, my food and my drink is to do the will of my heavenly Father. It's, it's, it's full and complete devotion in his heart of love for, for God. But he comes down to save us and the the only way to describe his motivation is that he loves us. Uh, he loves those who are unlovable. In John chapter 13, uh, John tells us that having loved his own, he loves them to the end. He gets down and shows them what love is. He grabs a basin of water and a towel. And get this, he washes the feet of Judas. Judas. The one who is just about to betray him. He washes Judas' feet. I'm doing this so that you will learn what to do after I'm gone. This is who you are. Now these are the disciples he is training. He's been training for three months. This mentorship. Walking together where they've watched him. They've heard him pray. They've seen him do miracles. They've heard his teaching. His whole perspective on what the gospel actually is, what God is doing. Um, and then his fulfillments in his, his death and his resurrection. He says, here it is, washing dirty feet. The greatest of these is love. Let me show you a more excellent way. They had all kinds of ideas about what the kingdom of God coming had to do, what it was like. And it, they were grand ideas, they loved the fact that they had a part in it. Peter's there boasting, you know. Uh, Jesus told him, you know, you're going you're gonna to deny me. And Peter's like, well, one of these might. <laughs> one of these disciples might be weak enough, but not me. I'll never deny you. And even in the face of that humility and that kind of empty boasting, that lack of humility, that not really knowing himself, Jesus gets down and washes the feet of of Peter. Let me show you a more excellent a more excellent way. The greatest of these is is love. He goes to Peter after the cross, after the resurrection, Peter who denied him three times, who actually swore an oath before God Almighty that he did not know Jesus. He, he had nothing to do with him. He wanted nothing to do with him. And three times Jesus comes. It's a private 
conversation with Peter and asked him three times, do you love me? Knowing that actually Peter did love him. And then told him, go and feed my sheep. It's going to be the hardest thing you're going to have to do. Your idea of what it is to serve the church, to serve the kingdom is going to have to change. The way up actually is the way down. Those who are last are first. The people you're called to love are not the people that are going to be able to pay you back. (laughs) Do you love me? Feed my, my sheep. And there is Jesus on the cross with the agony of bearing your sins and my sins. In all of their ugliness, the Holy Son of God. And he looks down, and there he sees John and his mom, and tells John that he's now her son, and he's going to care for her, and Mary, this is now your, this is now your son. And he's going to take care of you. I show you a more excellent way. He pursues sinner after sinner, uh, lost person after lost person, and calls them friends, and treats us as friends in giving his life for those that he loves. We are nothing without love. Jesus did nothing and does nothing without love. There's this, um, I, I don't know if... Uh, any of you remember the name Cory Ten Boom? She wrote this great book called The Hiding Place, which is a story of uh, her and her family in Holland during the Second World War, hiding Jews. You can go there today. Uh, we had a reservation once during COVID to go and visit Holland and go to the hiding place, but that obviously didn't happen. We'll do it someday, but uh, it's always captured my imagination. But not just that story, because eventually they were in concentration camps for hiding uh, Jews in their homes and many of them I think most of her family died and Corrie Ten Boom survived she wrote a lot of books she went to a lot of places and told her story one of the stories she tells in um, in the hiding place is that she remembered um, in the middle of the concentration camp uh, on on Fridays when they were stripped naked and they had medical examinations you just imagine Uh, These people just uh, put to shame, naked, standing outside. And she writes this, I leaned towards Betsy, who was her sister, who ended up dying in the concentration camp, ahead of me in line. Her shoulder blades stood out sharp and thin beneath her blue mottled skin. And she said, Betsy, they took his clothes too, referring to Jesus hanging, hanging naked on the cross. And ahead of me, I heard a little gasp. Oh, Corey, and I never thanked him. She was the one, Betsy was the one who always drew uh, Corey's uh, attention to the fact that God was even turning this evil into, into good. And you have a sense that in the middle of their horror and their trouble, they knew what it was like to experience love because they spent time with Jesus. And they remembered in their sufferings just what Jesus had accomplished for them. There was love and affection to the point where Corey Ten Boom, uh, in a meeting with one of the guards, 
at Ravensbrück, I think, uh, concentration camp, met with him later and extended uh, forgiveness. Love is not something you can learn. Love comes from spending time with the person named Jesus, who is love. That's the only way to become a person of this love, so that you and I can avoid being those who are known for being religious, but are actually just a lot of our lives, just a racket. Not helping, not fruitful. We are able to love only because we've been loved ourselves. We've been shown love by another person. And he then models that and mentors that love through his Holy Spirit in our lives. Uh, before love is something you do, love is someone you meet. The beauty of this passage uh, is revealed, and I hope the power of this passage, the glory of this passage, even though I, I, I introduce it by saying that, though it's a great wedding text, is actually kind of terrifying. The terror recedes as we see that this is about Jesus, who is love. Jesus suffers long and is, and is kind. Jesus does not envy. Jesus does not parade himself. He's not puffed up. Does not behave rudely. Does not seek his own. Is not provoked. Thinks no evil. He does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Jesus bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Jesus never fails. Let's pray.